This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I promise I'm not going to overwhelm you and bombard you with conversation about my record uh, under the moniker Havana Swim Club, but it is out. It came out three days ago on Friday. It's anywhere you listen to music. And if you want some summertime post-COVID jams by the pool, uh, maybe with a nice cold drink in your hand, or to have on while you are trying to focus on work or school, it is mostly instrumental, sample-based music. We are listening to one of the tracks right now in the background. That's it. I'll put the links in the show notes. I know you guys aren't here for my music output. That's not why you listen. But I got to at least say it. I'm excited. I'm proud of it. It just came out. I won't bother you for it uh, all the time. I promise. There's not a lot to say to set up my conversation today with theologian John Sanders. His ideas in this book, Embracing Prodigals, are something I have mentioned to other people probably every two or three days since we had this conversation 
uh, a month and a half ago. I have been thinking about them every single day. This book is probably one of the most helpful books you could read on the subject of sort of what is dividing us uh, in American society and Christian society today. If you like this podcast, you should probably read this book. But you can start with this conversation with John and I. Uh, is incredible. His distinction between authoritative and nurturant religion and in every other aspect of society, I, it's just sticking with me. I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, I don't want to say any more. Let's just get into it with John Sanders. John Sanders, I'm excited to have you here, man. I have known about your work since the early days of my involvement in the open and relational theism camp. I primarily know you as Tom Ord's sparring partner, <laughs> which which we may – I'm hoping that we will be able to bring open theism into this conversation at some point, maybe a little bit later on. But you've written this uh, very cool book called Embracing Prodigals, which is not really a work of theology uh, in the same way that, like, you know, Tom's book, The Uncontrolling Love of God or something, right. is a work of theology. This is this is actually kind of a work of religious sociology or yeah. even religious psychology, which, of course, puts it right up my alley. And I'm so grateful to be talking with you today. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. This is This is wonderful. So I'm going to start with a quote from the book, and I want you to just kind of tell us what you're talking about here. Okay. You say that cognitive science informs us that much of our reasoning, including thinking about morality, is unconscious. The moral values in these uh, two models, which we're going to get into, which is authoritative and nurturant, these go largely unnoticed by us, yet they shape us in powerful ways. Can you just speak to this unconscious bit a little bit. Yeah. So this is largely based upon the previous book I wrote, the book previous to this, called Theology in the Flesh. And it uses uh, cognitive linguistics and cognitive science to talk, to understand theology, the very language we use to do theology and moral reasoning about truth and everything. So it is unconscious. So think, for instance, of just any kind of, of saying. So if we say, for instance, he's crazy about it. Okay, we get it, move on. If somebody says at a commencement and a speaker says, graduates, you have a brilliant future in front of you. But what if the speaker, commencement speaker said, graduates, you have a brilliant future behind you. Hmm. You and I would go, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. We would perk up. Yeah. But it's a language called Aymara. And there's actually a, a, several languages on the, uh, earth that do this. But it's, it's a minority uh, that do. They think of the future as behind the human agent, not Whoa. as in front of the human agent. So for them, it's just, well, of course, and they point backwards. So when you point and you say past, they point in front of us. And when they say future, they point behind themselves. You and I do the opposite. We say the future is in front of us and the past is, is in back. And it's based on different metaphors, right? So we are using the metaphor uh, of a journey. And so uh, where we're going is the future. We haven't been there yet. 
where we've been is the past. So we've walked that. Right. But the languages for whom the past is in front of them use a different metaphor. So for them, it's the seen is knowing. And we use that, but we don't apply that same metaphor to past and present. So for those of you who are listening, like, when's he going to answer the question? I am answering the question. No, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm following you. They, for them, it's seeing is knowing. So they're looking yeah. at the past. Right. Because they right. see it and they know yes. it. And what That's they don't right. know is the future, which is behind them. That's right, because you can't right. see behind you. So the, the, the future is behind you. So right. we use different metaphors. <clears throat> so this is just an example of what we take unconsciously until we meet somebody from a different language group. And they have a different conception than we do. Then we have to, and, and it's perfectly understandable how they think. I mean, once we explain it, you go, oh, yeah, I, right. I get it. But at first it's like, what, what, what did you just say? So that's what I mean by unconscious. We're, we're, we use it all the time. And so these ways of, of framing things and the metaphors we use to think with, not just speak with, to think with, are largely unconscious. And so what I'm saying in the book is these models, these two cognitive models that are really about values we have. And so whether you think, for instance, tough love, you know, coaches or teachers, you know, give people exactly what they deserve, or whether you think, no, um, I'm going to uh, grant this person acceptance and show hospitality to them in, in seeking to transform them. Two different ways of parenting, two different ways of teaching, coaching, very prevalent in our society. And when we see them like in films or in books or in real life, you recognize them, but nobody has, I shouldn't say nobody, but we don't usually put a name to them. You have, John, you have put a name to them. <laughs> okay. So, so right, I don't want yeah, to take- People, people yeah. don't generally do that, right? Yeah. And so all this social science research was out there. Before we get into these models that you found, actually, I want to talk a little bit about some theological implications for what you just said. Yeah. I fully agree with your bit about there's all these unconscious uh, metaphors that we use, not just for speaking, but even for thinking that we inherit yeah. sort of we don't choose them. We inherit them by where we are. We happen to be born, where and when. And to me, that pushes me towards greater theological humility and yeah. ultimately yeah. more religious pluralism because yeah. because now if i if i accept your premise and then i still want to be a christian exclusivist by which i mean exclusively christianity has a lock on truth and god's not really interacting with people in other religions maybe they're secret christians in some way that they don't quite know but but we've got it well then i have to say that some of these very, very foundational metaphors and approaches to language that happen to exist in Western European thought that I have inherited, right. those are actually truer than the ones that people who are born in Japan happen to have. Yeah. And how am I going to argue for that? And, and how do I even have any access to what it would be like to be raised with those metaphors and ways of thinking, unconscious again, as you said. And so I just think, that's where I go, you know what? I don't think I can make that argument. I actually don't think I have access to the kind of information I would need to argue for the supremacy of Western metaphors over Eastern metaphors and therefore the linguistic truth claims of Christianity over anything else. I need to, I need to take a step back, still practice my faith, but do it with some more theological humility. 
Yeah. So what I do in, in the book Theology in the Flesh is really argue for this epistemic humility. We need this. This is really important. I show why. But I also show that there are some common, a few, maybe a few dozen, actually, human concepts that all languages use. Oh, interesting. So, so it's like we all have certain basic building blocks, but we can put them together in different ways. So, but those concepts are really general. They're like in and out, up and down, right, right. <laughs> front and back, periphery centered. Everybody uses those building blocks for their conceptual schemes. But like I was saying, which, one, which building block you choose then to apply to where's the future? Where, where's, the, where's the past? And whether you use, for instance, an egocentric, which means a human body centered. So if I say, Dan, there is a bee on your, your left leg. Okay, so I'm using egocentric. Okay. But there are languages and cultures that use what's called allocentric, meaning they have to know where north, south, east, and west is at all times. Oh, so they would wow. say, Dan, there is a bee on your south leg. On your south leg, right. There's a bee to your, to your northeast. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. just how they speak, right. Right. So then I get into this and say, so which way does God think? Right. So when you talk about theological truth and somebody says, I want to know, is it true that there is a bee on my left leg? Well, okay, we, we, we'll agree that there's a bee and the bee is on you know, your, 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 your person. But we're going to say, well, is it your southwest leg or are we going to say it's your left leg? Yeah. In which way does God think? Does God think allocentrically or does God think egocentrically? And I say, well, I don't think we know. I think what God has to do is say, well, this is an allocentric language. I will speak allocentrically. Yeah. This is an egocentric language. I will speak egocentrically. Right. The God of Christianity, the incarnate God, yeah. we could argue would meet us where we're at, which is liter- literally yes. what, what the yeah. claim is that Jesus is in the incarnation, meeting us where we're at. And it just – it explodes some categories if you think about it that way and it, right. it increases – okay, well – John, I'm going to have to just get that book and probably interview you about it. Um, so we'll move on to the to the new book, Embracing Prodigals, yeah. here because there's some really cool stuff. So what I want to structure this to have you talk about the two main categories, and there's kind of a middle category that you explain, but we don't spend a lot of time on one at a time, and let's just get our minds around them. So th- the three categories are authoritative permissive and nurturant. You already kind of spoke a little bit about authoritative and nurturant, but let's start with authoritative. So what is this authoritative paradigm that applies to religion, parenting, government, teaching, coaching, God? Like, just, just tell me what the authoritative bit is. Yeah. So it has key values that when you abide by this way of life and this way of thinking, you just take them for granted. Of course, this is the moral way to parent. This is the moral way to run a government. Yeah. So the idea is that uh, God, or if you were a non-religious person, you'd choose some other authority. You don't have to be religious to be an authoritative or a nurturant. So, but an authoritative person has some ultimate authority that you must obey. And obedience is key here. There are rules and you must follow the rules. So when it gets into things like uh, parenting or theology with God, God keeps the moral books. God has a you know, written account of everything. 
and right. God's going to judge you by, by that. And rule keeping. So if you're a child, you break the rules, you deserve punishment. You're a child, you keep the rules, you deserve a reward. It's, it's very straightforward. It's cut and dry. Morality is memorizing the rules. And then following them. Yeah. And then following them, doing them. The problem is when you arise, well, okay, that's a criticism. Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> okay. well, I'll just, I'll, I'll, um, I'll flesh this out a little bit. I am aware of a baby boomer, you know, friend of the family who tells a story that when she was 14 and then 17, that she understood and then had it confirmed by God that she basically knew the way to live and that for the rest of her life, her job was to be a solid fortress for that way. Right. At 14 and 17 and has, to my knowledge, not updated this vision. I'm sure. I'm sure she has some without realizing. But that's that's the story she tells now in in her middle age. And so that seems to me like a pretty good example of like, hey, I figured out the rules. I know the schema. That's what the human life is for. Right. Yeah. And so one of my professors in seminary, for instance, said, no, I, I figured it out. I've never changed my mind. Right. And he was blasting Clark Pinnock because Pinnock said, well, I changed my mind about, I changed from Calvinism to Arminianism, you know, and then I became an open theist. And this professor was ballistic about Pinnock. And I remember being a student, I'm like, well, what's wrong with changing your mind? Because if you change your mind, you're wishy-washy. Yep. It's, I'm like, well, aren't you following the truth? <laughs> the, the truth. And, you know, like, no, I've got the truth. So you use the word fortress. Authoritatives have a fortress mentality. You've got everything figured out. You build the fort and you defend the position. You don't go outside. (laughs) You're not on a pilgrimage. Okay. You've got the fortress and you've got it all figured out. And so you have the correct views and you must enforce those correct views. And children are not to question those views. Similarly, congregants are not to question what the pastor has to say. Yeah. Or, Or... the church leadership. And if you raise a question, you, why are you disrupting uh, the unity of our, of our congregation? Well, I'm asking questions about the truth. No, you're undermining authority. Okay. Yeah. So this is how it, it works out. So there's what I call, or what researchers call a, a, a fortress mentality for authoritatives, not a pilgrimage mentality. Hmm. We also talked about humility in our truth claims. No, authoritatives believe you've got it. And they want what is called cognitive closure. That is certainty that you are correct. So even as a young, you know, teenager in evangelical church, it was, if you were to die tonight, do you know, know where you would spend eternity? And if you say, well, yeah, I, you know, ah, you don't know. (laughs) Okay. You're not certain. Ah, you're lost. You're damned. You're going to hell. So they want that certainty. And then they write these books, theology books, to say this is the correct view on divorce and remarriage. This is the correct view of right. the Eucharist. This is the, the correct biblical view, on view is often the language they'll use. Yes, it's the the capital T, the, the biblical, biblical yes. view. Yes. yes, and so I can't tell you. I, I describe in the book how many times other theologians, pastors have said, "Why are Why are you questioning God? Why are you questioning the biblical view?" And I say. I'm not questioning the Bible or God. I'm questioning your view. (laughs) But the problem is they equate their view with God's view. There's no room in between. Yeah. And that is not just hubris. I think it is sinful. 
Uh, yeah, I think it can of, often be spiritually abusive. That's my own area of research, which I talk okay. about all the time. So we don't we won't get into it right now. Okay. But uh, you're actually making me think that I might need to dis- distinguish in that work between um, controlling abuse that comes from the narcissism of a leader and controlling abuse that is a natural result of authoritative religion. Yes. And I th- yeah. think I've just learned a new – I've just uh, modified my categories a little bit. Thank you, John. One thing I'd like to look at briefly while we're here in authoritative religion, I want to talk about white evangelicalism. And by the way, I listeners, I don't call it white evangelicalism because it is a racial thing. I call it that because right. the evangelical white and black church are just so separate right. sociologically for the last 50, 70 years yeah. that they have separate theologies and ways of doing church and everything. So in the primarily white evangelical space, which is the bigger group, which is the the ones that you know carried Trump to power and and George Bush and Ronald Reagan. Anything you haven't said yet? Where do you see traces of that authoritative religion in that church space? Yeah, so white evangelicalism is dominated by authoritative values, the authoritative way to parent, uh, focus on the family. Yeah, uh, James Dobson, the strong-willed child. You've got to take control. You've got to break them like a horse. <laughs> That's like. Like, whoa. It's sort of like a prison warden. Yeah. In that sense. I mean, obviously, it's not as brutal, but it is the same concept. Yeah. 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 You break their will until they submit. Gosh. And that's what God does, of course, in in their view. So, what I try to show in the book is how all these views of parenting, their views of criminal justice, their views of uh, economics, uh, their views about health care, and their views about hell. Those who've never heard of Jesus, they unevangelized. Their views of atonement, they all mesh together. Mm. It's a very coherent way of life. Now, I think it is damaging, harmful, and toxic. So you say, wait a minute, you're talking about white evangelicalism and conservative Catholicism and Mormonism. Yes. (laughs) Now, I'm not talking about all Catholics. I'm not talking about all white evangelicals. I'm not talking about all Mormons. (laughs) But... The dominant form of that, basically, what I would say is fundamentalist won the term evangelical. Yeah, fundamentalist is uh, is a good sort of overlapping term for this authoritative yeah. religion. You could, in, in fact, that actually might explain why some people experience some of this stuff in a non-technically fundamentalist setting, yeah. that there's yeah. just a lot of overlap and, and it's difficult. The lines might blur now and yeah. again. Okay, so let's move on to – there's sort of a middle category that you briefly introduced called permissive. Yeah. And you don't spend a ton of time on this, but what is this version? Okay, so permissive parenting is highly accepting. Whatever my child does is okay, I affirm them. And it has very low expectations. So it's not demanding, it has low expectations, but it's very high on acceptance. Authoritative parenting, authoritative religion – has high demands, huge expectations, and low acceptance. So it's the mm. it's the polar opposite of polar permissive. Opposite. Would you say that one explanation of the decline of like liberal mainline Protestantism is that a lot of people in that camp just went the opposite way of the yeah. authoritative fundamentalists and didn't yeah. find some sort of middle ground? Yeah. So the nurturant approach says I have high expectations, high demands. And I also have high affirmation, high and acceptance, acceptance right. hospitality, grace towards you. Okay. So 
it's it's in between the permissive and in between the authoritative. And yes, I haven't made the case that a lot of classic Protestant liberalism was permissive, but I do think that uh, it has a lot of similarities. Jim Wellman from UW, the religion researcher, he he's made that case. He's made it on oh, okay. on this show and on my previous show, Depolarize, and that is a part of that's a part of his recent work on megachurches and and why he is you know cautiously pro megachurch is that they have found for a lot of people may, maybe what he might call kind of this nurturant approach and you know he's of course aware of the authoritative issues right. in in a lot of those churches but his view is that a lot of people in the pews at these megachurches are getting something that's so much more active than the permissive approach of a lot of his mainline friends. Uh, He quotes friends of his saying like, if my children are going to bother me at church, I'd rather they not come. That's like, talk about low expectations. Yeah, I mean, that's just, there are zero expectations and and zero prerequisites for being a Christian kid in this family, you know, or, or something like that. Yeah. And, and so the nurturant wants to say, Hey, I'll take a stand. I'll put out a, a doctrinal belief on this. Yeah. I'll take a stand. And I'll support it with scripture. I'll support it with historical arguments and philosophical arguments and that. But I could be wrong. Hmm. Uh, I don't know everything. Maybe you know something I don't. So it's open to dialogue. The permissive approach is more like, well, whatever you believe is fine. It doesn't matter. I'm like, no, it does matter. Beliefs and values do matter. Yeah, they affect behavior. They affect thoughts and feelings. Yeah, they affect your mental. They affect our mental health. They affect our social relations. Right. Yeah. Let's let's laser focus now on nurturant. So okay. uh, we see nurturant approach in religion, but we also see it in parenting and policy, teaching and coaching. You know, can you fill that out a bit? Yeah. So core, some of the core values of the nurturant way of life are empathy. So putting yourself in the place of another, like walking in their shoes, thinking, wow, what would it be like to be a black father or mother and telling their 10-year-old child, okay, if you see a police officer, walk the other way. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, listening to my black friends tell me they that kind of thing is, I, I mean, it's not even part of my life. It's like thinking of the future as behind you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so, so different, right? It's so different. So empathy is huge. Cooperation. Right? We're not just individuals. We, we actually are communities, and we need uh, one another. Perspective-taking, social scientists call this uh, bonding and bridging. So bonding is when you're with people who really think like you and value like you do, and who eat the foods you do, listen to your music. That's, that's really just bonding. But bridging is when you reach out to people who are different. And nurturants are interested in bridging and not just bonding. Authoritatives bond really well. Right. So one theologian asked me when I was writing this book, he said, well, okay, can you explain my church, my congregation, very loving towards each other, but, you know, they're, they're politically and theologically, they say all these things that drive me crazy. And I said, well, yeah, because authoritatives bond, they will help one another. If you're like me, you have my, yes, I, I will help you. But it's the it's people who are different that uh, they don't. In in fact, to to go back to that that same family friend Boomer, she also once told me that she could have friends who were Muslim or whatever, like non Christian, but that's not fellowship. 
she had a okay. separate category for friends who were also Christian. These are not church members. These are just friends who are also Christian versus not Christian. So she even had two levels of like, you know, she thought about those friendships differently. Uh, And this authoritative versus nurturant, wanting to build bridges, wanting to expand the web kind of makes sense of of an anecdote like that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So one other thing I'll say about nurturance is they're comfortable with complexity. Yeah. So we need qualification, nuance. So when I teach, for instance, world religions, I have to make generalizations. Say, well, Hindus, you know, like, well, all Hindus? <laughs> it's like all Christians, you know, right. on, on baptism. Do all Christians believe? Well, no, there's actually different views, you know. And then we'll say, well, generally, Baptists think this way. But of course, can you find Baptists that aren't that way? So uh, nurturants are okay with complexity and uh, realize that, yeah, we have to make uh, qualified claims. You can still take a stand. Again, that's, this is what authorities think. Oh, so you don't take a stand on things. You don't actually say what you believe about. No, uh, I'll have moral stances. I'll have theological stances. But it's often more complex than authorities are willing to admit. Yeah, that's one way of describing the entire, uh, this entire podcast and my entire life's work is, <laughs> is arguing for the complexity. Yeah. And uh, some people have resistance to that in in what I would you know my language would be like personality at a personality level they just are resistant to that but but I would allow that perhaps one's upbringing and stuff would have an impact on this authoritative versus nurturant or permissive part of one's personality it's not all sort of you know just ran genetics or or genetics and no, family no yeah and so in fact several times as since the publication of the book Embracing Particles, people have said, well, isn't this just personality traits? And I'm like, no, the research I'm, I'm, I'm doing or basing it on, I, I'm not doing <laughs> you know, all the social science research. Right. It is not saying that it's how you were raised, that it's your personality. It's just saying however you get here. And there are people who were raised nurturant and become authoritative. And people who were authoritative, raised authoritative and become nurturant. These are the core values you live out. There is obviously some relationship, like some of the causality will be personality driven. Yes, yes. And so you might be, because of a certain personality trait, more likely to emphasize something of authoritative or nurturant right. uh, lifestyle. Yes. So I'm not denying that there are personality sure. traits or that upbringing affects people. An interesting question is how much of it comes from that and how much of it comes from right. – that's a really interesting question for sociologists and psychologists to tease out. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the nurturant path before yeah. we move on? Yeah. So a nurturant thinks of, for instance, the spiritual life as a pilgrimage. I haven't arrived. There isn't a fortress. I'm on a journey. And I'm on a journey with others. And so if we disagree about the best route to take, well, should we, should we go – you know, there's two forks in the road here. Which way should we go? We might disagree about that. But you don't think, well, we've got to have the one right way. And if you disagree with me, I kill you. What? <laughs> or I at least exile you from the fortress, right? If you disagree. So this is what authoritatives do. Authoritatives exercise deep control. And if you are a threat in any way to the leadership control, they have ways to get rid of you. And, and I have personal experiences of, of that in my life. Uh, many other people uh, do as well. But for nurturance, it's going to be, well, 
we legitimately disagree as to which fork in the road we should take here. I have my reasons for thinking this way, going to the right is better. You have your reasons for thinking going to the left is better here. We may not be able to resolve it at this point in time in history. Maybe five years from now, we'll have more information and we can better resolve it. So it's not like anything goes. Right. You are giving reasons, you are giving evidence, but we may not always be able to resolve an issue. And so I raised several topics in the book. And for instance, slavery. So I think it's a good example of authoritative and, and nurturing approaches. So Christians who supported slavery in the United States had scriptural texts that support slavery. So they had the Bible on their side much more than the nurturants did. Right. And they could quote chapter and verse and say, you're going against God. And, they, and I quote Methodist pastors and Baptist pastors in the 1800s who said, if you disagree with slavery, you are disagreeing with God. Now, today, I don't know any authoritative. Maybe there are some, but I don't know any. Yeah. We're saying, oh, no, no, the Bible teaches slavery. We should have slavery. I, I've yet to meet anybody or read anybody who's saying that. So today we take it for granted. But it wasn't taken for granted in the United States in the 1800s. And nurturants had to find ways of making a case that slavery was dehumanizing, that it was really against Jesus's ultimate teaching of loving your neighbor. You know, they, but those aren't straightforward, like just quote the verse. Right. It's, it's not obvious. So you need nuanced qualification, the pilgrimage. You, you need empathy. You need cooperation. So those are the values of a, a nurturant way of life, the key values. It's got me thinking about, actually, there's, at least in my experience of evangelicalism in California in the late 80s and 90s, there is a, I see both of these strands within it. And actually, I have an example to give here. So last night, I was a, a, a guest on another podcast called Boys Bible Study, where they watch Christian films and then discuss them like campy Christian films for Christians. We watched one from the 90s called Crime of the Age. And the the film had two uh, sentences right near each other that were both given as the point of view of the film. Two different characters said them, but you know they're they're both they're both basically being stated as true. The first was first thing you got to do is deal with that sin to to become a Christian. But then another character said a Christian is a person who lives their life for Jesus. And I thought, wow. This is actually an incredible encapsulation of two polarities within evangelicalism. And I was raised with both of those things. And I, it makes me think about the Jesus movement. So I was born 12 years after 71, the the start of the Jesus movement. I was born in 83. And you see when you, when you do research around that very early evangelical movement, you've really got both. You've got the biblical fundamentalists who are mostly authoritative, but just are okay aesthetically with hippies. And then you've got the the Lonnie Frisbees of the world and maybe more of the vineyard types have a bit more of this, like, no, there's some flow and some openness here and they have more of a, a genuine hippie spirit to them. That's more open to the movement of God and where might this go? And so from the beginning, you've got these two forces at play in that movement. I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on all that. Yeah. So one of the things I should point out to our uh, viewers and listeners is that people aren't just authoritative or nurturing. Many people 
are what the researchers call mixed. That is, they're partly nurturing and partly authoritative. Or some people might be an authoritative coach, but in their parenting, be nurturing. Right. And vice versa. So uh, what I'm trying to do, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to help Christians live more authentically nurturant lives and show them what doctrines and social issues and stuff would, would look like from a nurturant perspective. But there, I have a number of friends who I would say, yeah, they're, they're a mix of the two. And I believe those people are more easily persuaded. Those who are strongly authoritative, it's very difficult yeah. to uh, persuade them. They just, they just look at the nurturant way of life and say, you're immoral. Yeah. As I say in the book, one, one person asked me, wait a minute, before we go on, I just want to know, do you have any moral stands? Wow. <laughs> yes. So, but if you're an authoritative, it doesn't look like anybody else has moral stances. Because they don't stand on it the same way you do with absolute certainty. And, you know, if you have any compromise with the other, ah, so you're out. Any qualification, you're out. You know, whatever the issue may be, abortion, uh, an interpretation of a biblical passage, it doesn't matter. They have the same, what I call cognitive style, same approach. Do you draw any lines, uh, you know, whether in the book or just in your own thinking, between that authoritative style and support for Donald Trump? who is what presented himself as very authoritative. I mean, his, not yes. his, the Republican convention yes. speech yes. was like, I alone can yeah. fix this stuff. And, and like, I will be your warrior, your champion. Um, despite of course, having none of the classic Christian qualifications right. that James Dobson, for instance, would have recommended, but there's a lot of authority going on. Yes. So the research shows that the uh, strongest, the clearest way to find out if someone is a supporter of Trump is to find out how authoritative they are. Hmm. So in terms of like all these questions that there's, it's called the, uh, Oh, I lost the name of it. The election studies that they do after every election. Yeah. The, Oh, the, uh, the exit polls and then, or yeah. Oh yeah. They follow up on yeah. like Pew and, and Gallup and these folks. Yeah. So there's these national studies that are done. It's the American National Election Studies and the World Values Survey. They do these, these studies, and, and so they have shown that the most uh, accurate prediction, predictor of a Trump supporter is how authoritative you are. Well, conservative Catholics, Mormons, and white evangelicals are very highly authoritative in their uh, way of life. So some of my evangelical friends were distraught at the support of Donald Trump because of the immorality and the habitual lying. And they're like, but that's against authoritative values. It is. <laughs> Those are against authoritative values. But what they failed to see was how Trump connected so well with the authoritative mindset and, and way right. of life and the, and the core values. And so I explained in, in the last chapter or next to last chapter, chapter nine, why this is the case. And, and why even white evangelicals supported Trump so much, uh, even despite everything. And you might have thought, well, why don't they just support Pence and not Trump? And the answer is, as some very prominent white megachurch pastors said, uh, Pence is too passive. Yep. He's, he's too nice. <laughs> okay. And so what they want is someone who's going to blast the progressives who's who's going to say anybody who's not authoritative 
you don't belong here. Why? Because America is an authoritative country. Hmm. And if you don't have authoritative values, you're not a true American. You shouldn't be here. Right. And they love that. It fits into their churches. We're the true church. You know, our little congregation is the true church. If you believe just what we believe, then you're one of us. And God loves you. And if you believe differently, well, you don't belong here. And you're not really a true Christian. Hmm. It, it's the same mindset. Wow. Let's talk about the Bible. You say that there are authoritative scriptural texts. Yes. Before we get to how Jesus treats them, can you just give us some examples of, of where we see this authoritative model within the text itself? Yeah. Uh, so one of the examples I give is in the book of Exodus, uh, which is a book I love, by the way. So I, <laughs> I, I used to teach it in a class. Exodus and the Ten Commandments basically says, verses 4 and 5 in chapter 20, God says, if you love me and obey me, I will love you. Yeah. And it's a conditional love. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm getting, I'm feeling a lot of things as I think about authoritative people in my life and their relationship with their children. Yeah. And, and so I quote Benjamin Corey in the book, who says, think if I said to my children, look, you must believe exactly as I do. You must obey me in everything. And if you don't live exactly how I say you should live, I'm going to torture you forever. Like, what? <laughs> okay. We think I'd be a horrible parent. Well, but that's what, what God is doing. I do know of parents who have basically said to their children, obey me and I will love you. Or yes. maybe they don't yeah. say it explicitly, but that right. becomes implicitly very clear. Oh, and yeah. and when you're raised that way, uh, you end up working that out in therapy, <laughs> yeah. if you're lucky, right? Because it's uh, it's not the way to promote healthy attachment between right. parent and child, for instance. Yeah, yeah. But it is authoritative, and it's it's the way they define love. Nurturants say that's not genuine love. Okay, so we have different definitions of love. Right. Different definitions of justice. It, it's very different ways of life, and so. Often the authorities and nurturants talk past each other. Right. So part of what I'm doing in the book is to say, if you have authorities in your Christian communities, this is how they think. This is how they relate. So that you can go, oh, that's why they say that. Okay. It makes sense. Not that you have to agree with them. And conversely, I want to try to persuade them to become nurturants. But back to your, your, your question was about the Bible. So there are verses that I believe where God is, oh, you did that, and, and he zaps people dead. Right. So Phineas or somebody who grabbed the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that Az Aziah? I can't, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Uh, and, this is like uh, junior high Bible knowledge yeah. coming back, because that's yes, like one of yeah. those stories you really like as a 14-year-old. Yeah. yeah. And you say, well, wasn't he trying to do the right thing? Like, Yeah, but he wasn't of the particular tribe of Levi. Right to be able to touch the Ark of the Covenant. He broke the rules. So, he died. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The hatred of the Canaanites. Yeah, the Canaanite stuff, right? So I hate them. I love you. The end of the Noah story where he's like, you saw me naked, yes. ham, yeah. and so therefore your descendants and you will be cursed. Yeah. You broke the rules. Yeah. Right. Yep. So there are passages that one can cite to support the authoritative view of God. Okay, John, let me try something out here with you. All right. 
One of the things that always comes up when you're talking to a more conservative Christian is that they, you know, inevitably they get to realize that there are tensions within the Bible, that there are passages that seem to present God one way more authoritatively, and there are passages that seem to present God more nurturing. And if you're committed to something like biblical inerrancy, where you think, if you're the kind of person who says, I can't just pick and choose which Bible verses, right? Let's say you're that type of person. I wonder how you think about what goes on here. One, one way I'm thinking of it as you talk about this is that some people say, look, I can't, it's like a reverse Pascal's wager, or it's like a weird Pascal's wager. I can't take the nurturant passages as primary and looking at the authoritative passages, because if God is really authoritative, then I'm going to be screwed. So I've got to take the authoritative passages and interpret the nurturant passages in light of the authoritative ones. And that's got to be the backstop because there is more of a logical backstop nature to the authoritative ones. Them's the rules. I might zap right. you. Ananias right. and Sapphira, you lied about your thing. Right. Boom, you're dead. And you don't want to be Ananias and Sapphira. And you don't want to be teachers who will be judged more harshly, right? You don't want to be on that side of it. So even somebody who's got both, not a purely authoritative person, someone who recognizes both and they really, they really want to love their gay neighbors and they want to affirm them, but they're like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this God. What Am I getting at something here? Yeah. And, and there's, I, I, I understand that. So what I'm trying to do is to say there are various ways of handling the passages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And even fundamentalists pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Okay? So they always say, you can't just pick and choose which verses you, you want to believe. Like, right. you do. And so I try and give examples of even fundamentalists who, who do that. So when it comes to corporal punishment of children, and they say, we follow the Bible, we believe, you know, in corporal punishment. And this one uh, book shows, no, they don't. Because they don't leave welts on the back. They don't beat with a rod. They don't beat, uh, hit their kids with, in anger. Okay? Like, but the Bible says to do all this. So he, he, he gives you all these verses about how you put corporal punishment of right. children in the Bible. And it's illegal to do that in the United States. Right. You can't do it the biblical way. Right. Unless you want to be, uh, go to right. jail. So they actually claim, though, this is the facade. They claim right. to be following the Bible when they don't really do it. So there's other examples, like with tattoos. You, you can just go through and find all kinds of, of things in, in the Bible where, no. And, and how do you do that? You say, oh, it was cultural. Like, oh, God said no tattoos. Well, that was a cultural thing at the time. Or God, Women God said covering their do- heads. Yeah. That was cultural, right? Yeah. Don't plant uh, two kinds of uh, seed in the same uh, field. Don't have two kinds of uh, cloth material in the same garment, Leviticus 19 says. And he's, oh, oh, yeah, that was all you know, uh, cultural. It's not, it's not applicable to us today. Like, okay. But do you realize what you just did? Right. You just said those verses are not applicable to me in, in my setting. All right? So you are selectively... Now, it may be a reasoned way, and it's fine. Right. But it is selectively saying, I'm going to follow these passages of the Bible and not those. So yeah, we, everybody, all, we all do it. 
Yeah. yeah we, and, and, but the fundamentalists just don't admit it. The authoritative say, no, no, no. You obey everything in the Bible or nothing in the Bible. Right? Pete Hill, the psychologist at Biola, he, his model of fundamentalism with his co-authors explains that by saying that what separates a fundamentalist from a non-fundamentalist is not taking the text literally or not, but it's whether you allow some outside input to tell you how to interpret the Bible. And so what the fundamentalist would say is like, yeah, but there's also stuff about the new covenant changing the old covenant. And there's, in my view, because the Bible is not univocal, because it's multivocal, you can always find another verse to get you out of a pickle. It just ultimately, you know, my my concern is more of a meta concern that it, it doesn't all fit together anyway. Yeah. So in that case, uh, Dan, when they say, well, it has to be criteria internal to the Bible. So in the chapter on the Bible in my book, so there's three uh, internal criteria. The principle of love is used in the Bible to then overturn other passages. Mm -hmm. They say before Jesus and after Jesus. So, oh, before Jesus, we had to do these things, but now we don't have to do them uh, after. And of course, they don't emphasize the part where Jesus says, not a single (laughs) jot or tittle shall (laughs) go away from the law. They don't look at that one too closely. And some call it progressive revelation or Mm -hmm. following the trajectory. And so you can follow the trajectory on the treatment of women and see it's getting better. uh, So they say those are internal to the Bible. But as you said, they say, oh, nothing external to the Bible. You can't. So I've had students tell me, why do you allow modern science to tell you how to read the Bible? Mm -hmm. And I say, oh, you don't? They say, no. I just go with the Bible and disagree with, you know, astronomy or whatever it might be. And I say, oh, oh, okay, fascinating. So I usually give them this example. Say, in the book of Joshua, it says, the sun stood still and did not move for an entire day. And I say, so what is the passage saying? And they say, oh, the earth slowed in its rotation on its axis. I said, what? Say it again. And they tell me, and I'm like, but that's not what the text says. The Bible says the sun stood still. The sun did not move. And you're telling me that the earth didn't move. Hmm. Why are you saying that? Oh, it's because you think that we live on a planet that actually rotates. That rotates. Yeah, because actually yeah. the sun is, sun is always standing still. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that actually is a very creative way out of that one. I'd just yeah. be like, no, see, it was technically right. I want to ask about, I want to get into Jesus here a little bit. Okay. So you talk about how Jesus recognizes uh, these, or, or Jesus surely knew about these authoritative yes. texts, yeah. but but he basically ignores them. Yeah. Um, and when he does mention them, he says they're wrong, and he, he changes it to a more nurturant teaching. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. So Jesus looks at certain texts. And, he, and Jesus could have said, you know, like to the woman who had a hemorrhage and touched him, like, hey, dude, uh, Leviticus says you can't be here. You've got right. to be outside the community, right? But he doesn't. The woman caught in adultery, yeah, accused of adultery, like, yeah, okay. But he then chooses other texts. So when he, like, in Leviticus 19, I'm sure he's familiar with all the other verses in, Le- in Leviticus 19. But what he picks out is love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. That's what he uh, seeks to highlight. So when people, when authoritatives press him, Jesus selects nurturant texts yeah. to uh, reply to them. 
and then suggest this is what you should do. And then they try and find ways around it. Like when, when uh, somebody says, what, should, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the scripture say? And they go, well, love God and love your, your neighbor. Jesus says, man, yes, that's the whole law. You got it's it. It's a whole yeah. summary. You got it. And then dude says, well, yeah, but. But who's, who's my, my neighbor? neighbor? Right. Yeah. You know, let's, 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 let's start parsing this out a bit. Uh-huh. And, and so then Jesus says, oh, well, let me tell you. Okay. And so Jesus uses this cultural background of the hated Samaritan. Yeah. Despised by the pure Jews. And Jesus then says, but it was the Samaritan who actually loved God and loved the neighbor. And to them, that's like, no, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as good Samaritans. I mean, those, those words don't go together. Jesus could have picked out texts where God hates Gentiles. Right. And Canaanites. And oh, stuff. they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. And instead, Jesus selects these passages where these Gentiles did great things, you know, right. uh, in relation to Israel. So I, I pick out passages like that and show that Jesus is selective as to which texts Jesus wants to emphasize. Now, Jesus is the authority. Now, here's another thing I really want to emphasize. Jesus is the authority for the Christian life. So it's not just all these verses in the Bible. It's Jesus. Right. And if Jesus is picking and choosing, Jesus is being selective, then we have to, uh, I, I think we need to follow Jesus. And I think Paul and Peter do the same thing. They, they are selective about which texts uh, they're citing. Can I, let me ask you about a little bit of a tougher one, maybe. Okay. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about divorce and he says, you know, yeah. you heard it said or, or whatever under Moses, because of your hard hearts, you know, God granted you, you could get a writ of divorce, whatever. Um, of course, only the husbands could do this, not the wives. Right. But I say to you, you know, don't ever divorce. And then in yeah. Matthew or Luke, one of them kind of softens it and says, except in the case of infidelity. Right. And then the other one, he just says, no divorce. One way of thinking about that is authoritative. The rules just got right. harder. It's harder right. to get divorced. Right. Of Another way I've heard it is like, Jesus is leveling the playing field between men and women, though. And so that's yeah. nurture. You know, where, where do you come down on something that's a bit more ambiguous like that? Yeah. So I would want to look at the, the context. What is Jesus trying to accomplish with this audience? What, what's, the, what's the problem that Jesus is addressing? So this text isn't there by accident. There is a point to it. And to be honest, I haven't studied that passage in any yeah. detail to give like, oh, here's my take on it. I, I don't have the take on it. But my suspicion is that Jesus is trying to undermine something in the audience that's being presented to him and saying, you really need to recalibrate. Well, if we take it in context with uh, do not murder, but if you hate your brother, you've murdered him, do yeah. not commit adultery. But if you've thought lessfully about a woman, you've committed adultery with her. I mean, if you take it in context, which I believe that is the context of the divorce passage, but I could be wrong. I've always thought of that as like sort of the ethical program of Jesus's main teaching, which is to it actually fits very well with your authoritative versus nurturing. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you've got these black and white rules that you can follow and be pure but I say to you, it's actually about the intentions of the heart, yeah. which are murkier. Yeah. Um, and it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, right. but what comes out of him. So taken in that context, it's another one of these bits, which, yeah. I mean, do you think of, do you think of that 
on I mean, certainly authoritative lines up with the the purity. Does nurturant right. line up very cleanly with it's the intention of the heart, or is that a, a bit more of a a jagged puzzle piece? No, no. The, the nurturants are going to be more interested in what are your motives, mm-hmm. what are you trying to accomplish, rather than just the rule. Yeah, authoritative is like the rule's clear, dude. You either do it or you, or you don't. And in nurturant morality, you learn rules because there are general rules, like proverbs. I think the book of Proverbs is full of general rules. Okay, mm. so is it uh, good to lie? Well, no. Generally speaking, <laughs> that's not a good thing to do. Right. But those are generalizations. So the rules are general principles for life, but they don't apply in all situations. So it, when the, the Gestapo knocks on Corey Tenboom's door and wants to know if she's hiding Jews or you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, are you, right. you know, part of the resistance? You know, Bonhoeffer said, well, yes, I lied to them. They don't, they don't deserve the truth. These people right. are, are uh, against God. Now, Bonhoeffer didn't say, oh, so just lie all you want. Okay? No, the general rule is there, but you have to right. apply it. The problem with authoritative uh, morality is that it has the rules, but as situations change or become more complex, it's like, well, I don't know what to do. And this is where you often get authoritative children growing into adulthood, and they don't know how to live out in new situations because, well, what's the rule for me here? Nurturants have to think, okay, Jesus didn't live in this situation that I'm facing, or Paul or Peter or Moses. Right. But these stories, these narratives give me values to live by. And so I have to then creatively think about how I'm going to live out in this situation, this context, these values. And I may not be right. I, I may screw it up and, right. and, and improperly apply them. But you do the best that you can in those situations. That's a very nurturant way of approaching them. So, yes, the intentions, the motivations are going to be really important. It's interesting that you bring up that topic of, of children growing up because I just wrote down a question to ask, which is and, – and I want to be careful. I don't want to judge people here, you know, especially people whose personalities are just very naturally bent toward authoritative through no choice of their own. But is there an element of, of just straight up maturity here that by and large, a more mature adult human will move toward a nurturant approach and away from an authoritative approach, uh, assuming some base level of sort of cognitive ability and other types of abilities like where they're not, um, I don't know, they have the stuff, you know, sort of the biological stuff of it. Is there a, is there a maturity angle? Well, I believe that there's going to be two different definitions of maturity. Just like there's two different definitions of love, two different definitions of justice. It's, no, this is the mature, authoritative person. Now, uh, you could look at Maslow, Kohlberg, Piaget, you know, uh, those, those kinds of people who would say, no, this is, you know, not the most mature. Well, why not? Well, I believe because they're operating on a different value system. Right. So I, I would say that from a nurturant perspective, they are not mature. Yes. That, yeah. And then you could duke it out. You could duke it out between authoritative and nurturing and, and right. have that argument. And if you, you know, if one is, uh, and, and I'm, I'm of course with you on nurturant being better, but technically somebody could argue that authoritative is actually better for flourishing right. or whatever. Yes. You could argue that it's, it's better. It's, it's moral, but the research shows, and this is a couple of chapters in the book. 
Yeah. The social science research from around the world is, I think, undeniable. Hmm. You have better, healthier children, pro, more pro-social, more self-reliant. In other words, they can take care of themselves. Nurturance children are more, more self-reliant than authoritative uh, children. They get along better with others. Uh, they cooperate. They empathize. Nurturants have better mental health, less depression, less anxiety, less obsessive compulsive disorders. Authoritatives have more of a tendency to have tremendous anxiety about God, about others. They have less, attach, uh, less attachment in their relationships. The research, I think, is conclusive. I don't think it's even close. I don't think you can make a case. So I'm going to say that authoritatives actually are not mature, hmm. according to how we think is the best way, most flourishing way of human life, which is the way God created us to be. So I'm going to take a pretty strong stance there. And that, that may ruffle some people. I'm sorry. Uh, but I do believe, so I, I present the research. I'm not just making these things up. I actually present the research for each of these claims about depression, anxiety, mental health, prosociality, etc. Right. It's not going to ruffle too many listeners of this show. <laughs> it no, might okay. ruffle uh, their if they share it with their parents or something. I got to say, just just where you started getting into the social science research, uh, you had uh, graciously sent me a PDF of the book that I could look through to write questions. But I have now ordered the book. I now realize okay. that I need a paper copy because I got to get in there and mark it up and uh, – see where this intersects with my own work. That is a fantastic uh, summary of the social science research. If people want to to dig in, I recommend that they also get the book and, and, and look at some of those individual studies. Let's talk a little bit more about Jesus, uh, because as you said, Jesus is the standard for Christian life. Yeah. How did Jesus see God in the kind of you know terminology we're using here today? Yeah. So, he calls God Abba. So John Cobb has a great book, you know, on Abba. Yeah, Jesus is Abba, right? Yeah. So a very uh, intimate, familial term. Jesus thinks of God as forgiving, that the followers of Jesus is to be a forgiving community. It's a grace. I mean, when you look at the parables of Jesus, there is judgment, but it's usually the judgment is, look, you're all welcome. Come on in. Join the party. Okay, Matthew 24, the king's son's wedding. Come, everybody, come on. Come on in. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not. If that's the Messiah, no, I don't want it. And who gets judged? Who gets yeah. sent to be burned like chaff? It is the authoritative yes. religious folks. Yes. Right? Which is yes. so funny because they are the ones who, when they argue for eternal conscious torment, for instance, right. Or argue against universal salvation. It's like, look, Jesus talked about yeah. gnashing of teeth and a fire that right. doesn't go out. Yeah. And who does he send there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's not the people you think. It's actually the authoritative religious, which was in Judaism. There were nurturant um, uh, forms of rabbinic Judaism. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that that becomes a very common reading of all of this is like, uh, it, it leads to anti-Semitism, first of all. It did yeah, in Martin Luther yeah. and it has in other people. But like oftentimes and, – and and you could argue maybe that the, the gospel writer of Matthew sort of lets – is a little slippery with some of this and kind of puts it on the Jews when it's not right. all the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus' followers right. were Jews. Uh, <laughs> Samaritans saw themselves as in some sense Jewish like Abraham's descendants. So right. that, that's not what's going on. But but why, what's going on with that misconception? 
Yeah. So uh, part of it is this Western, I'll just speak for American Christians. I I know that better than other forms. It's just this story like, oh, the Jews, right? The Jewish people are against Jesus. And it's like, no, read it carefully. Jesus's disciples are all Jewish. The women who follow Jesus, yes, there were a lot of women that supported yeah. Jesus' ministry. They're, they're all Jewish. You go back uh, before Jesus, the two greatest schools of rabbinic thought, Hillel and Shammai, right? Hillel is a very nurturing uh, leader, very forgiving, empathetic. Shammai is the authoritative, uh, follow the rules. So Jesus was a rabbi. Uh, it's likely that Jesus went to rabbinic school. It may be that he studied you know, with some lineage of Hillel. Yeah. Uh, he's, he certainly agrees a whole lot with that side of Judaism that's there. Yeah. So Jesus's statements about what's the greatest commandment basically is paralleling Hillel. So that's there. So I, I certainly don't want to paint a picture like Jesus is against all Jewish right. uh, religious figures. He's not. Jesus is actually selectively saying, no, I'm with these folks who are arguing in these ways and, and promoting these values. I'm against my Jewish brethren who are promoting these values and thinking these ways. Yeah. So Jesus sees God as nurturant. Yeah. And, and man, that's good news. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If the God of the universe is nurturant and has expectations, has sort of a, yes. an opinion about how things should go, it's not just pantheism. Like God just is everything and everything is sort of equal no matter what. If God is really like this, if God is nurturant, has a plan, but has maximum acceptance to bring us along toward that plan. I mean, that's the best news possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus includes, so one of the big arguments from the authoritative rabbis was, why do you show hospitality to these Jews? And the technical word is sinner in Mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sinner means a Jew who doesn't follow the Old Testament rules. Right. So why do you show hospitality? Why do you accept them? Why do you show affirmation to them? And Jesus is saying, I show affirmation and acceptance to them so they can change. Jesus is not saying, right, they have no problems. (laughs) Right. You know, everything's cool with them. The problem's with you guys. Like, no, they have problems. Right. Jesus says, They need a physician. They are sick. Jesus doesn't say they're perfectly healthy and fine. Why are you guys on their case? But the question is, how do you treat them? How do you bring restoration? How do you bring healing? And is it by the authoritative, clean up your act, dude, and God will accept you? Or Jesus's way, which is God accepts you. Now, you can change. Go and sin no more. You're free. I just liberated you. (laughs) Okay. You are free to be a transformed uh, person now. Mm. That's a very different approach. So one of the stories I I quote in there is uh, the play, the book, the movie, uh, Les Miserables. And this uh, person who's been released from prison, Jean Valjean, the bishop shows him hospitality, invites him in, gives him food, place to sleep. And then he steals some of the silverware. And the next day, the police bring him back. And say, we caught him red-handed, here he is. And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother. So he first includes him as yeah. part of the family, all right? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I read this, I just tear up. This is, this, just, this is amazing grace, folks. Jean Valjean, my brother, you forgot the candlesticks. They're worth a lot more money. And the police say, what? 
you, he said you gave it to him. Indeed, I did. Now, the bishop lies. He lies to the police. And when the police leave, Jean Valjean says, why are you doing this? He can't understand it. And the bishop says, Jean Valjean, my brother, I have bought your soul from evil thoughts, from perdition. And you are now to, to live according to the promise. And Valjean says, what promise? I didn't make a promise. The promise to be a new person. Now, there's no guarantee that he would. But the whole rest of the play, the movie, the book, is Jean Valjean transformation into a person mm-hmm. of grace. With the authoritative Javert coming yes. after him the whole yes. time. Yes. Right. Who, the perfect who, characterization of oh. an authoritative perspective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's real grace. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is accepting these people, affirming them, not because they're okay. He says they're sick. They need a physician. They right. are lost. They need to be found. <laughs> uh, there's many different metaphors uh, for their condition. And Jesus says, I want to help them. And the authoritative say, but your way of helping them is not the true, proper, right way. Because what they have to do first is follow the rules. Then God will accept them. And Jesus says, no, God accepts them and loves them. And now they can follow these certain rules. Hmm. Wow. So good, man. And I'm just thinking of like the woman caught in adultery, the the woman at the well with the seven husbands. Yeah. You know, there's always an admonition to like go and yeah. sin no more. Like yeah. don't live this way anymore. Right, yeah. This but I don't harmful. condemn you. Right. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Romans 8. There is now no no condemnation. Like that's the whole point. There is no condemnation, but God still has expectations for you. The book's called Embracing prodigals. This will be my last question for you, John. Okay. Who are the prodigals? I mean, we most oh. of us know the, the story of the prodigal son. Yeah. I don't think we need to rehash it here. Right. But like often the prodigal son is, you know, is the one who goes and and uh, wastes everything and, and wants the pig food and comes back. But you might think of like the older brother as the prod, you know, like how do you right. see that story lining up with this topic? Yeah, thank you. So I don't mean that everybody's a prodigal, that everybody's done exactly what the prodigal son did. That's no. Some people have asked that question. I'm like, oh, I should have explained that in the book. (laughs) So no, it's simply that the prodigal son, I believe, is a story that is a magnificent set of lenses to put on and use our eyes to look through what is God like. I think this is fundamentally the way God treats us, says Jesus. God is the loving father who says, well, I really don't want you to leave home, but I will give you everything. <laughs> so he divided his wealth between the two sons, okay? Even the older son got his share of the inheritance. So he divided the wealth, and the younger son then unfriends, unfamilies himself and leaves. The father doesn't want that. When he comes back, everybody expects the father to treat him harshly, to say you're not one of the family, you don't belong, uh, you don't deserve it. And of course he doesn't deserve it. But the point of the parable is God gives what he doesn't deserve. Why? To say, you're part of the family. You were lost and now I'm found. You were dead. And think of it, a, a child who had a near-death experience and you know comes out of the surgery alive or whatever, and you're like, whoa, this is awesome. Jesus says that's what God is like. God is like, you're my child. You were lost and now found. You were dead and now alive. That's wonderful. That's how God treats us. That's the way of Jesus. That's the nurturing way of life. John Sanders, thank you so much, man. Listeners, I really recommend you get this book. 
I'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course. And um, sometime in the future, I'll have to have you back on to talk about uh, theology in the flesh and sort of some more of those abstract questions around pluralism and all of that, because I, I really love that stuff as well. Um, anything you want to leave us with? No, thank you so much. It's a fantastic conversation. Uh, have a great rest of your day. You too, Dan. It's true, I couldn't uh, resist putting one more Havana Swim Club track in here at the outro. Thank you to John for that fantastic conversation. Of course, I've got a link to his book in the notes. Um, And thanks to Josh Gilbert, my editor. He is available for other podcast editing, should you have that need. To support the show financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash tancoke. That link is also in the notes. Patrons get access to at least two uh, exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the Facebook only, or sorry, the patron only Facebook group, the online community of this show, which uh, I am privileged to be a part of. We'll see you guys next week for another great episode, I hope. And I'm going to leave you with the rest of this Havana Swim Club track. The link to the Spotify and uh, maybe some other stuff is also in the notes if you want to check out the record. See you next week.